and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in the middle of a short series on the life of Elijah, and class teacher Doug Brady has titled this series, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. Today's lesson takes us into the 18th chapter of 1 Kings for the Battle of Mount Carmel. As I listen to this information and story, I wonder how many of us could be counted as a man or woman of conviction. Do we measure up to the life of Elijah? The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We certainly enjoy having visitors to our class and invite you to visit when you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, so open your Bible to the 18th chapter of First Kings. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We've been studying a guy named Elijah, and one of the reasons that we chose to study him was because he was living in a nation that had been a godly nation and was now a pagan nation, a nation very much like ours. And we learned some things about him. He was, and you're going to see today, an extremely courageous man. But what made him so courageous? It was because he was a man of conviction. And you're going to see that today as he's going to express those convictions again. What's the first thing he was convinced of? God's real. What's the second thing he was convinced of? He was God's man. Can anybody tell me the third? He knew and was convinced that God gave him the power and the resources to meet whatever challenge came before him. I, you are right. At first I wasn't sure, but you're right. Exactly. There was a widow and she had a son. And I'm going to tell you the reasons why I think they both became believers. So I told you about the widow last time. Now, what basically has Elijah been doing for the last three and a half years? Surviving. Not just surviving. What? Somebody said it back there? Hiding. Now, during the time he was hiding, you know, it's probable in my mind that somebody was going to stumble across where he was down by the brook Cherith. That's why God moved him. But what else was going on in his life while he was hiding, he was being trained. In fact, he was being remade. And what did we compare it to? A cold chisel. That's exactly right. Now, you, you thought I was the only one who was in the DISD who made one. But I've got Mark Strickland's chisel right here. He was in the DSID. He made one. Now, do you remember, at the first there was a period of softening. 
shaping, hammering, and filing. But then the second series, Up in Zarephath, there now was sharpening and hardening and turning the tool into something that could really be used. And it's, this one was blued to prevent it from corroding. And my edge, our bevel is a little longer, more of the Japanese style, where Mark's is more of the German style. But then again, what would you expect being married to a German girl? No, wait, he wasn't married then, was he? But that's okay. We knew what was going. Well, the question then is, how long does this training and reshaping last? And the answer is three and a half years, because today is the day we're going to start the next period, confrontation. Confrontation. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Does God ever want us to confront the other side? Yeah, he does. But for what purpose? To turn the other side to him. Now, that's important. A lot of times we think, well, if you're going to confront somebody, you're not going to be able to turn them. Well, God can, and he can use you to do it. Now, in this situation, we've really got five camps, five camps of people. The first one is God's man, Elijah. The second one is Satan's man, Ahab. The third one is Satan's woman, Jezebel. The fourth one is Baal's priests. Do you remember how many there were? 850. And then the final one is the people of Israel. Now remember, we're talking about the northern kingdom, not those in Judah and Benjamin who are in the southern kingdom, northern kingdom. And so that is the group that we're facing. So we start, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. But before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, We thank you for the time that we can spend here. I thank you for this exciting passage. I pray that you will speak through me, that you will empower me with your grace, and that you will fill me with your truth, and that I will be able to share with my friends and brothers and sisters here today the important principles you've reserved in these passages in 1 Kings. I pray, Father, that you will keep the distractions away And that we will be able to see what you want us to learn. May the Holy Spirit teach us today and not me. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. 1 Kings 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. If the famine is severe in Samaria, it also is going to affect other of the world around there because Samaria was a primary supplier of food to that area. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Elijah's going to have to be walking through his, and you know, almost everybody walked, walking through that land And he sees the people dying and starving and hurting and being ruined. And he knows he was the one who asked for that. Now he asked for it 
because that was God's promise in order to bring Israel back to him. Do you think he's concerned about Israel coming back? Yeah, to stop this famine. And so in verse 5, it says this. Well, wait, I want to read this out of 1 Kings, because uh, in your notes, you won't find verses 3 and 4. It says, so Elijah, in verse 2, went to show himself to Ahab. Now, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah greatly feared the Lord greatly, or feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and brought them bread and water. Now, Obadiah was his prime minister, so to speak, his number two guy. But he was a closet worshiper of Yahweh. And he helped protect a hundred of the prophets. Now, I want you to see, then Ahab, in verse 5, said to Obadiah, go through the land to uh, all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. And Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. So verse 7, now as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And he, that is Obadiah, recognized Elijah and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? Do you notice that term there? Now, do you know what the Hebrew word is there for my master? Obadiah. No. Adoni. Now, Adoni. Adonai is my master, masculine plural. Why? Because there's three in one. Adoni is my master, masculine singular, which is what he would use here. It just in one eye as opposed to an AI. Now, here's the thing though, Demers. Adoni is never used to refer to God as my master or my Lord except one place. And that is in Psalm 110, 1 and 2. And that's where Yahweh says to Adonai, sit on my footstool until I... That's the passage that Jesus used to shut up the questioners. I wonder if it still has that effect today. Well, we'll have to... Anyway... The thing is, that's the term that he used here as he bows down before Elijah. Now, he's obviously in a higher position than Elijah in the government, but not in God's economy. So he recognizes the prophet, and he says, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go and say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. Now, that is going to greatly upset Obadiah. Well, well, why would it? Look at his response in verse 9. And he said, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? He thinks, well, if I go to Ahab and tell him uh, Elijah is here, he's going to put me to death. As, the, as Yahweh your Elohim. Now, notice what he says here. He's using your, not my. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent search for you. 
And where they said he's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they uh, could not find you. And now you are saying, go say to my master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and brought them and provided them with bread and water? Now, and now you are saying, go to your master, behold, Elijah is here and he will then kill me. And Elijah says, as the Lord of hosts lives, behold, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself today. Notice what he's saying again. The Lord of hosts who lives, before whom I stand, I will show myself. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. What was it that caused Obadiah to change his mind here? Do you see anything in what was said? Let's look at that one more time. Damaris, do you know the name that's there in yellow? Yahweh Sabaoth. Well, what does that mean, Yahweh Sabaoth? Well, it's more than... No, that's not exactly right. This Lord of hosts means the commander of the armies of God. This is the name that David used when he went out to meet Goliath. You know, you'll come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. What are my weapons? I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the armies of Israel. When Obadiah heard that, what did he know? There was going to be a fight. That's what he knew. And so he said, sure, I'll go get him. John, you have a question? Yes, sir. Is this also the name that was used Joshua? Yes, in the plains of Jericho. Yahweh Sabaoth. And it's important to understand those names and what they mean. It helps you interpret the scriptures. You say, well, how do I know that I don't speak Hebrew? Jerry, don't we have a set of lessons on the names of God on the uh, website? We do. And you could go there and print off the notes. And there's a chart there that uh, has the different names. And it tells you everything about them. So we come to verse 17. Now, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to them, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Let's stop there a second. As soon as Ahab sees Elijah, he immediately attacks him. Does anybody do that today? Maybe we could say progressives. Uh, Maybe we could say in some forums, moderates that are really liberals. You know, it's interesting that they don't like really saying what they are. But anyway, they will, how do you respond to that? You remember last week, we had a lady who was basically blaming Elijah for everything he did. What did he do? He stood there in the shadow of his God and let her rant. Then said, give me the boy. Is he going to stand here today as he's being attacked by Ahab and just let him go? No, because you see, before it was training Now it's confrontation. How does he respond to that? Well, let's look and see. And in verse 18, and Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. 
because you are forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, the world likes to blame God's people for the problems. Elijah doesn't hold back. He doesn't even give Ahab a chance to respond before he throws down the gauntlet here. But I want you to see something. When Elijah called Ahab the troubler of Israel, did he give an explanation why? Yeah. When Ahab called Elijah a troubler of Israel, did he give an explanation why? Why not? Oh, yeah, he did. He could have said, you were the one that came in and told us you were going to stop the rain and that you, your God was real and that you were God's man and it wouldn't rain again until you said. But what would he be confirming then? The power of God, Yahweh. And he wasn't about to do that. Remember, his God's Baal. And so he couldn't. It's interesting how God directs people to speak in a certain way so that you can really see Who's his man and who's not? Who's in control and who's not? So he doesn't give him a chance to speak. He's now going to throw down the gauntlet. In effect, he said this like taking a glove and slapping him across the face. You know, when they used to say, I challenge you to a duel. Here it comes. Verse 19. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel on Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And you see, there's a famine going on, but those guys are all happy and eating at her table. She's not doing without. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, why would he do exactly what Elijah wanted him to do? It's more power and maybe have better control. He's there by himself right now, but, but in addition to that, it's the verse that I like to quote so, many, so much of the time. We ought to always remember it, and that is, if you look at it, it's in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he wishes. Can we change the subject of that? The Supreme Court's judge's heart? The jury's heart, the governor's heart, he can. Now, does he do turn it the way we always want? No, but it's always the way he wants. And so if you look at that, now he has done that and he has brought everything together. And so we fast forward in verse 21 of chapter 18 to that site at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came, when, he, when they come, uh, in 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah came near to all the people. Now, I want you to notice what he's doing, because this is really key here that I want you to see. Who's there at this, and it may be an unfair question, but some of you, I think, will know, because you guys have told me you've been reading ahead, and you get so excited about this. Who's there on Mount Carmel? Well, all Israel is gathered there, the people. Is Ahab there? Yes. Are all 850 prophets there? Yes. Now, who is Elijah going to be dueling with? Answer, the prophets. So does he address them to set the ground rules? No. He's smart. There's going to be, what's his 
what's his bottom line goal here? The hearts of the people, exactly right. Turn them back to Yahweh. So he's going to now set up and talk to the jury. You see, he's smart, kind of like a lawyer. And he realizes who's going to be making the decision. Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Now, if you were in East Texas, he would say, how long are you going to stay on, sitting on that fence? Is it really that comfortable? Especially if it's a barbed wire fence. But how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now, is he saying anything that's unfair for this contest yet? No, he's setting it up. Look at the evidence is what he's saying, just like a lawyer would. If Yahweh's God, you ought to follow him. If Baal's God, you ought to follow him. Whoever's God is the one that you ought to follow. And the people, did they agree with that? No, they didn't. But the people did not answer him a word. What does it mean when people are silent and they give no answer? They may be confused. They may not know the answer. But also, they may not want to say the answer. That's usually the situation. In fact, Chris, I know you have four kids you raised. They're all adults now. But do you remember when they were young? And you'd ask them a question. Did you? And if they didn't say anything, you knew. Yeah, there you go. Um, he's going to set up now the rules. Notice how smart he is here. I'm going to get the people to agree what we're going to do today. So those prophets over there, they have no choice. So then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves, cut it up, place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and I will lay it on the wood and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. Now, they answered this time, didn't they? And you know what a lot of them are thinking? You know, this guy, Elijah, he may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Doesn't he know that Baal is the God of rainstorms and fertility? If there's this specialty is lightning, how can he possibly want to do that? He's playing right into Baal's wheelhouse. And yet, that is exactly what Elijah intended to do. Question. I have a note in my Bible, I'm not sure this is correct, but where he says, when Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, well, there were a hundred other prophets. There were, but there's only one who's standing up. And I think that's the question. What is a prophet's purpose? To speed out. A prophet's not going to speak, it's not a prophet. And I think he was making a statement towards that. I mean, he's uh, doing what God wants him to do. Are those others? Seems not. So, Elijah didn't ask the priests for an agreement, uh, Baal's priests. He asked the people who were going to be the jury that day. And so the rules of engagement favored Baal. So what happens? 
So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go ahead and choose whatever ox you want. Prepare it first for you or many. Call on the name of your God, put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given to them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And so they leaped about the altar which they had made. Now I want you to consider something here because there's a very important lesson here and I want us to see. Number one, did they exhibit faith in their God? They sure did. In fact, great faith. Does it matter of first importance how strong your faith is? No. It matters the object of your faith. You see, this is something that's very important to understand in so many different ways, but especially theologically. Faith is a non-meritorious process. It doesn't bring merit to the one having the faith. It instead transfers the merit to the object of the faith. You see? So the object of the, even though their faith was strong, it fails because the object fails. So they're doing this. They're going through this process. They're leaping and dancing. Leaping is a word you could translate dancing. There's a work in a frenzy around this altar, doing everything they can to persuade their God to answer them. And yet there's no answer. There's no voice. Now, some of you may not like this, but God is going to give us an excellent example of religious tolerance in the next passage and how God expects us to be tolerant of other religions. And we need to be, understand this principle. So it starts in verse 27. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, call out in a loud, loud voice, for he is a God. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps is asleep and needs to be awakened. Now you're not, he's saying you're not calling loud enough. Why? Well, he gives him some alternatives. It could be he's occupied. He's involved in some other business and is not listening to you. Now the next one, he's gone aside. That means he's sitting in the bathroom. Or he's on a trip somewhere and he, and he can't hear you because he's traveled away from your earshot. Or maybe he's just asleep. And if you call a little louder, you'll wake him up. That's Elijah's idea of religious tolerance. How did they respond? So they cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday had passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Does anybody know what the time of the evening sacrifice is? Three o'clock. Very good. But there was no voice. No answer, and no one paid attention. Now, one of the things I want you to see here, is this a battle of gods? Well, you could describe it that way. Do you know what the score is going to be on this battle? One to nothing. Do you know that's a score that you can have in every athletic event that we have in our country? You say, well, I wait, I can see that in soccer. 
I can see that in baseball. Basketball, you don't have a score of one to nothing. Football, you can't have a score of one to nothing. You can't score one point until you score six. Wrong. In all of these sports, you see, the score one to nothing means a forfeit. That one team doesn't show up. And what did it just say? Baal didn't show up. Why? Because he doesn't exist. And that's the point here that we need to see. So, you know, in our country, the left screams for religious tolerance. That is, until once another religion gets in control. Then there's no longer any religious tolerance. Elijah understood that concept because there hadn't been any religious tolerance towards the worship of Yahweh in his country because they would kill you if you did. Let's see what happens because now the ball, so to speak, is in Elijah's court, starting in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of Yahweh, which had been torn down on Mount Carmel. And this is one of the reasons he picked it. There was an altar there for making sacrifices to the God, Lord God of Israel. But when Baal came in, they tore that altar down. Now Elijah is going to restore it. He's going to restore that altar. And he repaired the altar of the Lord of Yahweh, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold Two measures of seed. Now, do you ever dig a trench around an altar? Answer, no, there's no reason to. What possible reason could you have to do that? Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, why would you pour water on an offering? You're, you're hoping that it gets lit. That it's ignited. Water and ignition or oxidation and, and reduction don't work when there's water there. I mean, that's something all of us know. You want to put out a fire? Put water on it. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And he did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And it filled the trench with water. Now, at the time of the evening of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now he's talking to the people again, and this is important. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now we stop right there a second. I said, you said that he was talking to the people. He's not talking to the people. He's talking to God. This is a time when sometimes God's men and women want to pray but not just so God hears them, so that everybody else hears them. Why? So when God answers, they know God is a God who answers prayer. And so Elijah comes near to the people so that they can hear him. And in a loud voice, he starts talking to God and he says, Oh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Do you notice that? What is he praying and saying? He's praying his own convictions. 
Let them know that you're real. Let them know I'm your man and that you have the power and the resources to meet whatever challenge before us. If it's no rain, you have the power for that. If it's to light this sacrifice, you have the power for that. Let them know. Do you, do you have an opinion why he said, uh, not Jacob, but he said Israel? Yes, I do. Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he's now in the kingdom of Israel, and that's the name they chose when they divided with Judah. And so he wants to tie it. He's their God. And even though they say Baal may be the God, that's a lie. And even when they say we're not a Christian nation anymore, God didn't have anything to do with us, that's a lie. So how does this prayer go? He says, and I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Now, what is, Mark, I want you to look at this very carefully. What is the central part of his prayer, the prime thing that he's asking for? To turn the people's hearts back again. Now, is he asking that God send fire? Yeah, but not for the purpose of showing those other guys up, for the purpose of turning the people's hearts back to God. And so I want you to see there are some people who have said, Brady, you're missing an important point here. And this shows why the Bible's really not that accurate. There was a three and a half year drought. Where are they going to get the water to douse this sacrifice? There's no water. They're all dying. Now, let's show them, Jerry, where Mount Carmel is. Do you see that? You can't drink seawater. You can't grow crops with it, or you can't feed animals with it. You can't even use it to irrigate your fields. But it works a whole lot better for dousing sacrifices, does it not? There also was a study that I read that there was some, on Mount Carmel, there was this perennial spring that may have still been flowing. We don't know for sure. But there's plenty of water down in the Mediterranean Sea. So there's plenty of water to douse that sacrifice, and there really is no error here in what's going on. Now, Eddie, again, what's the time of this event right here, time of day, three o'clock. He is asking God to ignite this sacrifice at three o'clock, the time of the evening offering. In the next 800 years, is there going to be another event on a hill where something is going to happen at three o'clock? The Lamb of God is going to die. Now, somebody might say, well, okay, we know that Jesus died then, but how do we know it was at three o'clock? Well, Matthew 27, 46 said about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And shortly after that, he gave up his spirit. Now, you say, but that says the ninth hour. That's because they're using Roman time. From six in the morning, you have 12 hours. And then from six in the evening, you have 12 hours. So the ninth hour from 6 a.m. is what? 3 p.m. Same time. And so I want you to notice one other thing before we go on. I want you to notice Elijah's prayer. Was this prayer a great, complex, 
multifaceted prayer like you've heard some people pray? Or was it just a simple prayer? What made it so real? The faith behind it. Elijah was convinced that God was going to answer his prayer. And he was going to turn the hearts of the people back. So with a prayer like that, with that kind of faith, what is the result? Well, let's see. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering, and it consumed the wood, and it consumed the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the, the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And the prayer was answered. And what again was the primary purpose of the prayer? To turn the hearts of the people back to Yahweh. And God answered. Now, that's going to be tested in just a minute. Well, Ahab is stunned. But you're going to have to wait till the lesson on after the fire. You won't get it today. Now, let's look at this just a second. What does Elijah do at this point? The people are now with him. Let me ask you this. Don, I want you to tell me how you'd feel about this. No, the doctor, you go to the doctor and the doctor, and you're saying, I've got this pain in my abdomen. Something doesn't seem right. And the doctor pokes and prods on you for a little while, and then he says, you know what? I think we're going to have to do exploratory surgery, Don. And you say, well, a doctor, if you think that's well, you say, just a second. You get on the phone. Damaris is what he wants to do. She says, well, I guess that's okay. And then uh, you say, okay, schedule it. You go into the operation. He cuts you open. He finds this large mass that's not really connected to anything yet, but it's cancer and highly malignant. You wake up from the operation and he comes in and tell you, let me tell you what I found, Doc. Don, I, I found this mass. It was cancerous. It's highly malignant. It metastasized very quickly. And you say, yeah, and you cut it out. Well, no, I wanted to talk to you about it first. I closed you back up. <laughs> You'd be pretty mad, wouldn't you? Cut that sucker out. Maybe even take a little bit of the good flash just to make sure you got all of the bad. That is what Elijah is going to do now. He turns to the people and he says, grab those guys and don't let one of them go. What guys? What guys? The prophets prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah. 850 of them. Grab them. Well, let's make sure. He said, then Elijah said to them, that is the people, seize the prophets of Baal, not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Did he cut out the cancer? Now, let's ask a question here. There's 850. Who slew them? Elijah slew them all? Well, we can be able to know because you see in Hebrew, when you look at the verb slew, you simply ask yourself, is this singular verb or plural? It supplies the pronoun Which is it, singular or plural? And if you were to look at that verb, you would find it's imperfect tense, third person, masculine, singular. Elijah killed every single one of those prophets and cut that cancer out of his country. 
If God's people start to pray for a revival and God's people stand up and proclaim salvation through God's love and forgiveness and they get in a position where they can start turning the laws back to the right way, should they cut out the cancer? Some people don't squeamish with that. Elijah wasn't. I'm just thinking about um, the conversations that evening when they're talking about, hey, we were going down the wrong road. Maybe God should have killed us also. And uh, maybe, maybe that night they talked about how God is merciful. I think you may be right. It was only prophets. And we're going to see more about that when we get to the next, the next thing. They were or they were not saying anything and just, I think a lot of them were just going along to protect themselves. You ever noticed any Christians that just kind of go along and don't speak out? Well, that doesn't mean if they don't speak out, they might just be an introverted person. I mean, I can't judge everybody because they don't have a big mouth. Elijah was just doing really well over in Tishbe until he realized somebody's got to speak out. Yes, Raina? When we're looking at that verb, slew, and it's masculine singular, why would it not be using Elijah so that it would point back? Because you don't, in Hebrew, you don't have a gender of a verb pass through the subject and go, it's he. And it was God's man who was killing him. I mean, who was, who was doing the actual killing? He's cutting him up. I think he's using the same sword or knife that he used when he cut up the oxen for the sacrifice. And there's no question. But now let's go on. I want you to see a couple of things because there's some extremely important concepts here that we need to make sure we don't miss out today. Why did the people, when first confronted by Elijah, say nothing? We talked about that a little bit. Let's look at it again. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? You see, you're not standing up for what's right, and you know you're not. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Why? I think there's three reasons. Two present, one future. Number one, they saw the fire in Elijah's soul as he stood before him. We can't get that through the writing that much. If you'd have been there, you'd have seen it. And they also heard the fire in Elijah's voice. With that, they were willing to wait and see, will the fire really come down? And it did. In effect, let's not say anything to this guy. Let's just see what happens. Those guys miserably failed. So let's see. You know, it took them hours, and they still couldn't do anything. Once Elijah got the sacrifice built and all the water poured all over it, Probably took them five minutes. So that's number one I wanted you to see. Number two, what is, what ignited the fire? Nope. Power of God didn't ignite it. Elijah's prayer. This is the principle right here. Our most effective weapon is the prayer of faith. If we want to turn our nation around, we got to get on our knees and pray. If we want to Raise up people who will speak to God's love and forgiveness and bring salvation to God's people. We got to pray. You don't go on a missionary journey without praying. You don't change a nation without praying. 
That's what Elijah was all about. That's what he spent his time doing at Cherith. That's what he spent his time doing at Zarephath, is talking to his God. That's our most effective weapon. Now, third thing I want you to see. No one who was there at Carmel had ever seen courage like Elijah displayed that day. Not, it's never been seen in Israel like that until you go back to David and Goliath. That's the last time Israel had seen courage like that. What happens if Elijah fails? He dies. It's not him who's getting, it's not those prophets are being cut up. It's Elijah and whoever's with him. So well, nobody's with him. Yes, somebody's with him. I'm just not going to tell you who right now. So we, I want you to see that, that God's people must be able to display godly courage. That's especially true of God's leaders. God had chosen his, his man, Elijah, to lead the people back to Yahweh, their one true God, but the leader has to be courageous for people to follow him. Now, let's examine real quickly Elijah's courage, because I want you to see this. Why did it become a conflagration that day? I'm going to suggest to you three reasons. Number one, his resolution outweighed his reservations. He was greatly outnumbered, but he recognized that Baal had to be confronted no matter what the cost is. You see, when there's no bridges behind you, you fight differently. And that's the way Elijah felt. His number two, his desires outweighed his desperation. He knew that that day could be his last, but he wanted to honor Yahweh as God no matter what happened to him. Just like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And his compassion outweighed his complaints. Although he hated what had been done to his nation, both in turning them away from their God and then putting them through this famine. And what had been done to God's prophets and how the followers of Baal had infected the people's heart. His passion, more than anything else, was to belong to and follow Yahweh. And I'm going to do whatever he asks me to do. I don't care. And that kind of courage translates to the followers. One final thing before we finish. How can we ignite God's fire in us the way Elijah had been ignited? Number one, when we really know, and when I say no, I mean experientially. When we really know our messages from God. When we stand for him, willing to stand for him regardless of the cost. When we face circumstances that only God's fire will ignite. When we publicly trust God to do what he promises to do, and when we carry within us an overwhelming desire to see others turn to God. When you do that, the fire will ignite in you, and it can't be put out. Now, sometimes we ask ourselves, can I, as only one person, make a difference? Satan will whisper into your ear, Doug, no. One person can't do it. But what is Elijah a shining example of? Absolutely yes. Only one man. And he's turning his people back to God. He's eliminating the cancer. Now he only has two to deal with. Ahab and Jezebel. They ought to be easy now. He's gotten the hard part done. Elijah teaches us to never underestimate the power of one Totally dedicated life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, 
I thank you so much for the time that we can spend here today studying your word. I thank you for this wonderful story of this man, Elijah, that you have given to us. Help us to really understand it and build these principles into our lives. Now, Father, I want to pray for our nation. You know our nation has become wicked. And most of us in this room really do not understand the extent of that wickedness, that evil, how ugly it is, how perverse it is. And yet, Father, just like in Elijah's time, you have the power to turn the people of America's heart back to you. We once were a Christian nation, a one that believed in you and trusted in you. We put it on our money. We put it in our Pledge of Allegiance. So, Father, I pray that you will raise up your people who will pray for revival for our nation, that we will pray fervently, that we will seek to live righteous lives to empower our prayers. You'll also raise up men and women who are leaders of courage, who will speak out, who will not compromise, who will not allow the other side to take due advantage, but will speak with a godly courage. They'll speak with power and with love and with sound judgment, but opposing the forces of evil and pointing the way towards God in his love and forgiveness. I pray that you will do this for our nation. Be with our pastor as he speaks to us today. Give him great insight and power. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.